0: part two chapter five of the dead letter by meta victoria fuller victor this librivox recording is in the public domain on the trail i need not dwell at much length upon our visit to san francisco since nothing important to the success of our enterprise came of it from the hour we entered the golden gate till we departed through it i was restless with a solicitude which made me nervous and sleepless destroyed my appetite and blinded me to half the novelties of san francisco with its unparalleled growth in hybrid civilization i gave the most of my time to two objects looking by night into all the bad popular or out-of-the-way dens haunts saloons theatres and hotels scanning every one of the thousands of strange faces for that one sinister countenance which i felt that i could know at a glance and in the endeavour to identify the man who had disposed of the park bank bill to the express company i was rewarded for days of research by ascertaining finally and beyond doubt that a gentleman of respectability a spaniard still residing in the city had offered the bill to be discounted at the time it had been accepted by the company i made the acquaintance of the spanish gentleman and with a delicacy of address upon which i flattered myself i managed to learn without being too impertinent that he had obliged a fellow-passenger two years previously who was getting off at acapulco and who desired gold for his paper money with the specie and had taken of him some two or three thousand dollars of new york currency which he had disposed of to the express company burton was right then my heart leaped to my throat as the gentleman mentioned acapulco from that moment i felt less fear of failure but more if possible intense curiosity and anxiety it had been my intention to proceed to sacramento in search of the haunting face which was forever gliding before my mind's eye but after this revelation i gladly yielded to the belief that mr burton would find the face before i did and in the relief consequent upon this hope i began to give more heed to his injunction to do my part of the duty by taking good care of his child lenore was in rising health and spirits and when i began to exert myself to help her pass away the time she grew very happy the confiding dependence of childhood is its most affecting trait it was enough for her that her father had given her to me for the present she felt safe and joyous and made all those little demands upon my attention which a sister asks of an older brother i could hardly realize that she was nearly thirteen years of age she remained so small and slender and was so innocently childlike in her manners and feelings her attendant was one of those active women who liked nothing so much as plenty of business responsibility the trip to her was full of the kind of excitement she preferred the entire charge of the little maiden entrusted to her care was one of the most delightful accidents that had ever happened to her. I believe she rejoiced daily in the absence of Mr. Burton, simply because it added to the importance of her duties. But I was glad when the fortnight's long delay was over and we were re-embarked upon our journey. My mind lived in advance of the hour, dwelling upon the moment when I should either see, awaiting us on the dock, where he had promised to meet us, at the isthmus, the familiar form of the good genius of our party, or... That blank which would announce tidings of fatal evil. We glided prosperously over the rounded swells of the Pacific through sunshiny days and nights of brilliant moonlight through the soft evenings, Lenore, well wrapped in shawls and hood by her faithful woman, remained with me upon the deck, sometimes until quite late, singing, one after another, those delicious melodies never more subtly, understandingly rendered than by this small spirit of song. Wrapped crowds would gather at respectful distances to listen but she sung for my sake and for the music's unheeding who came or went sometimes even now i wake at night from a dream of that voyage with the long wake of glittering silver following the ship as if a million peeries in their boats of pearl were sailing after us drawn on by the enchantment of the pure voice which rose and fell between stars and sea The last twenty-four hours before reaching the isthmus witnessed a change in the long stretch of brilliant weather common at that season of the year. Torrents of rain began to fall, and continued hour after hour, shutting us in the cabin and surrounding us with a grey wall, which was as if some solid world had closed us in, and we were never more to see blue sky, thin air, or the sharp rays of the sun. Lenore, wearied of the monotony, at length fell asleep on one of the sofas, and I was glad to have her quiet, for she had been restless at the prospect of seeing her father early the next morning. It was expected the steamer would reach her dock some time after midnight. As the hours of the day and evening wore on, I grew so impatient as to feel suffocated by the narrow bounds of the ship and the close gray tent of clouds. Lenore went early to her stateroom. I borrowed a waterproof cloak from one of the officers of the vessel and walked the decks the whole night, in the driving rain, for I could not breathe in my little room it was so possible so probable that harm had befallen the solitary detective setting forth a stranger in a strange land upon his dangerous errand that i blamed myself bitterly for yielding to his wishes and allowing him to remain at acapulco in order to comfort myself i recalled his ability to cope with danger his physical strength his unshaken coolness of nerve and mind his calmness of purpose and indomitable will before which the wills of other men were broken like reeds by a strong wind. The incessant rain recalled two other memorable nights to me, and the association did not serve to make me more cheerful. There was no wind whatever with the rain. The captain assured me, after I had asked him often enough to vex a less question inured officer for the twentieth time, that we were all right, not a half hour after time, would arrive at the isthmus at two o'clock a.m. precisely." and I might go to bed in peace and be ready to get up early in the morning. I had no idea of going to bed. The passengers were not to be disturbed until daylight, but I was too anxious to think of sleep. I said to myself that if Mr. Burton was as impatient as myself, he would, despite the storm and the late hour, be upon the dock awaiting our arrival, and if so, he should not find me slumbering. As we neared our landing, I crowded in among the sailors at the forward part of the boat, and strained my eyes through the gloom to the little twinkle of light given out by the lamps along the quay. As usual there was considerable stir and noise upon the arrival of the steamer, shouts from the ship and shore, and a bustle of ropes and swearing of sailors. The passengers generally were snug in their berths, where they remained until morning. In a few moments the ropes were cast ashore, and we were moored to our dock. I leaned over the gunwale and peered through the mist, the rain had kindly ceased descending for the time various lamps and lanterns glimmered along the wharf where some persons were busy about their work pertaining to the arrival of the ship but i looked in vain for mr burton disappointed despondent i still reconnoitred the various groups when a loud cheery voice called out richard halloo i experienced a welcome revulsion of feeling as these pleasant tones startled me to the consciousness that mr burton had emerged from the shadow of a lamp-post against which he had been leaning, and was now almost within shaking hands' distance. I could have laughed or cried, whichever happened, as I recognized the familiar voice and form. Presently he was on the vessel. The squeeze I gave his hand when we met must have been severe, for he winced under it. I scarcely needed to say, "'You have been successful!' or he to answer. There was a light on his face which assured me that at least he had not entirely failed. "'I have much, much to tell you, Richard,' "'But first about my darling. "'Is she well? "'Happy?' "'Both. "'We have not had an accident. "'You will be surprised to see Lenore. "'She has improved so rapidly. "'My heart feels a thousand pounds lighter "'than it did an hour ago.' "'Why so?' "'Oh, I was so afraid "'you had not got away from Acapulco.' "'You do look pale. "'That's a fact, Richard. "'As if you had not slept for a week. "'Let your mind rest in peace, my friend. "'All is right. "'The trip has not been wasted. "'Now let God give us favouring breezes home.' and two years of honest effort shall be rewarded. Justice shall be done. The wicked in high places shall be brought low. He always spoke as if impressed with an awful sense of his responsibility in bringing the inequities of the favored rich to light, and on this occasion his expression was unusually earnest. "'Where is my little girl? What is the number of her stateroom? I would like to steal a kiss before she wakes. But I suppose that careful Marie has the door bolted and barred, so I will not disturb them.' It is three whole hours to daylight yet. I can tell you the whole story of my adventures in that time, and I suppose you'll have a right to hear it as soon as possible. I will not keep you in suspense. Come into the cabin. We found a quiet corner where, in the wee s'ma hours, by the dim light of the cabin lamps, now nearly out, I listened, it is needless to say, with what painful interest, to the account of Mr. Burton's visit in Mexico. I will give the history here, as he gave it, with the same reservations which, it was evident, he still made in talking with me. These reservations, which I could not fail to perceive he had frequently made since the beginning of our acquaintance, and which, the reader will recollect, had at times excited my indignation, puzzled and annoyed me, but there was soon to come a time when I understood and appreciated them. On that day of our outward voyage, when the ship was detained to land a portion of her passengers at Acapulco, Mr. Burton, restless at the delay, was leaning over the deck rails thrumming impatiently with his fingers when his attention became gradually absorbed in the conversation of a group of mexicans at his elbow several of whom were of the party about to land they spoke the corrupted spanish of their country but the listener understood it well enough to comprehend the most of what was said one of their number was describing a scene which occurred upon his landing at this same port some two years previous the ship bound for san francisco met with an accident, and put into Acapulco for repairs. The passengers, knowing the steamer would not sail under twenty-four hours, the most of them broke the monotony of the delay by going on shore. A number of rough New Yorkers, going out to the mines, got into a quarrel with some of the natives, during which knives, pistols, etc., were freely used. A gentleman named Don Miguel, the owner of a large and valuable hacienda, which lay about thirty miles from Acapulco, And who had just landed from the steamer, attempted imprudently to interfere, not wishing his countrymen to be so touchy with their visitors, and was rewarded for his good intentions by receiving a severe stab in the side from one of the combatants. He bled profusely, and would soon have become exhausted, had not his wound been immediately and well dressed by a young American, one of the New York passengers, who had landed to see the sights and was standing idly to one side viewing the melee at the time Don Miguel was injured. The Don, exceedingly grateful for the timely attention, conceived a warm liking for the young man, whose Yankee quickness and readiness had attracted his attention while on board the steamer. Having given such proof of his fitness for the place as he had done by dressing the Don's wound, that gentleman, in the course of the two or three hours in which the young stranger remained in attendance upon him, offered him the situation of physician upon his immense estates, with the plain promise that he should receive benefits much more important than his salary. This offer, after a short hesitation, was accepted by the doctor, who stated that he was out in search of his fortune, and it made no difference to him where he found it, whether in Mexico or California, only that he should be assured of doing well. This Don Miguel, in his sudden friendship, was prompt to promise. The Don, besides vast grazing farms, had extensive interest in the silver mines which bordered upon his hacienda. Dr. Seltzer was deeply interested in an account of these, and returned to the ship for his baggage bidding his fellow-passengers good-bye in excellent spirits and well he might consider himself fortunate continued the narrator for there are none of us who do not feel honored by the friendship of don miguel who is as honorable as he is wealthy for my part i do not understand how he came to place such confidence in the yankee doctor who had to me the air of an adventurer but he took him to his home made him a member of his family and before i left acapulco i heard don miguel had given him for a wife his only daughter a beautiful girl who could have had her choice of the proudest young bloods in this region it may be imagined with what interest mr burton listened to the story thus unconsciously revealed by the chatty mexican he at once as by prescience saw his man in this fortunate dr seltzer who had registered his name mr not doctor on the passenger list and whose name was among those that the detective had selected as suspicious I interrupted my friend's narrative here to explain the matter of the bank-notes which he had exchanged for specie with a passenger, but found that Mr. Burton already knew all about them. Edging gradually into the conversation, Mr. Burton, with his tact and experience, was not long in drawing from the group a description of the personal appearance of Dr. Seltzer, along with all the facts and conjectures relating to his history since his connection with Don Miguel. Everything he heard made assurance doubly sure— and there was no time to be lost in deciding upon the course to be pursued in this unexpected doubling of the chase. To get off at Acapulco was a matter of course, but what to do with the remainder of his party he could not at first determine. He knew that I would be eager to accompany him, yet he feared that, in some way, should we all land and take rooms at any of the hotels, the wily Dr. Seltzer, doubtless always on the alert, might perceive some cause for alarm and secure safety by flight. To go alone under an assumed name in the character of a scientific explorer of mines seemed to him the surest and most discreet method of nearing the game, and to this resolve he had come before he sought us out to announce his intention of stopping at Acapulco while leaving us to pursue our voyage without him. End of part Two, Chapter Five.